Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers? The Home Depot has an idea. Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to bring out the most in her patios, walkways, and gardens. Right now, get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants, indoors and outside. Shop our wide selection online and pick up your order in-store and give mom the gift of a beautiful garden. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 at The Home Depot. How doers get more done. ESG has become established as a key business theme as companies and investors seek to navigate the climate crisis, energy transitions, social megatrends, mounting regulatory attention, and pressure from other stakeholders. The rapidly evolving landscape has become inundated with acronyms, and we aim to break them down with industry experts. Welcome to ESG Currents, brought to you by Bloomberg Intelligence, your guide to navigating the evolving ESG space one acronym at a time. I am Gail Glazerman, Senior ESG Integration Analyst. And I am Shaheen Contractor, Senior ESG Strategist, and we are your hosts for today's episodes. And I guess we're also completing each other's sentences, Gail. <laughs> Today... We're going to be digging into the S or the social within ESG, probably one of the most overlooked aspects of this wonderful, wonderful acronym. Today, I'm going to kick things off by talking about the relevance of the S. Now, Gail, I know your passion is in sort of identifying material implications for companies. So I'm curious, tell me a little more about the S, the relevance, the materiality aspect of it. Sure. Social issues can seem challenging. They can feel less talent tangible and have a strong moral element to them, but they also can have significant financial impact. And this really isn't dissimilar to looking at the environmental space. It boils down, certainly in my perspective, to financial materiality as well as industry specificity. Different issues will manifest differently or not at all for different industries. It really, really depends on the industry how this how this is going to be managed or whether it's going to, again, manifest at all. For some industries, social issues may be relatively immaterial, but for others, they can be the primary driver of ESG risk and opportunity. For example, looking at steel and cement, they have some of the heaviest environmental impacts. And in comparison to that, social exposures may seem relatively low. On the other hand, healthcare, service-based industries, social factors can seem significantly more material than environmental. Take tobacco. Certainly growing and processing tobacco has an environmental footprint, but relative to the risks associated with regulation on sales of tobacco products, that's relatively small. And then there are a few other factors to consider. Sometimes these issues are interconnected. An oil spill, for instance, can have obviously a really wide and deep environmental impact, but the operational um, management of that, the operational risk and the safety procedures that you put in place in the training is a social issue. So they're not completely separate. And then finally, just because an S issue may be less material for an industry, that doesn't mean that an investor should just ignore it because they still can have significant financial consequences. No, I agree. And I think the thing that sort of resonates with me the most is that 
you know, there is no one size fits all when it comes to ESG and different things are material for different industries. Just as another example, you know, when I think of the S, one of the sectors I cover is mining. I think, you know, one of the most dangerous industries, safety is pretty material. And the company that comes an example to my mind is Sabani. So this is a gold miner in South Africa. And for years, you know, historically, they've had these elevated fatality rates. And then finally, a couple of years back, the regulators just shut down its mine shaft because of safety issues. And the company ended up with gold production at the lower end of guidance. So, you know, when people say no financial impact, I'm like, here, take this example. And then the second thing is, you know, if you look at ESG linked to executive compensation, just by the way, this is my favorite metric. You'll hear me say this 10,000 times. Um, but what I think is when executive compensation is linked to an ESG issue, it is it almost implies that it's an issue in materiality. For the miners, almost every company I've analyzed has some kind of link to safety. When a CEO's bonus depends on something, again, I think it's really material. And I think that just points to sort of identifying issues. I mean, I'll say no other industry has this safety link, as I see in mining. So definitely relevance, you know, different things to different industries. Exactly. I mean, I just get so frustrated when I hear someone say, you know, this is just woke and not yeah. material because yeah. in the right place, the right issue, it absolutely is. Or to separate this acronym, right? I mean, to the E. I mean, but the E is different for different industries. How can you do that? Anyway. Uh, Shaneen, I'm just wondering, you do a lot of work analyzing funds. How have they been trending with social issues? What, mm -hmm. what have you been seeing? Yeah, so the funds world is interesting. So let's paint a little bit of a picture. So if you take ESG and sustain, sustainability labeled funds, the number in terms of assets is about 2.3 trillion. Now, the S is definitely a much, much smaller piece of the pie. I think that's expected. I mean, just to put some perspective, the E, so the environmentally labeled funds, you know, be it climate or carbon, uh, this is about 456 billion. Right. And if we look at the S, so take one small aspect like diversity and inclusion, this was about five billion as of October last year. So huge number of differences over there. So that's one trend. The environmental piece of funds has definitely been increasing over the last year as well. Social, uh, it's also been increasing, but it's definitely more niche. The the second trend, I would say, is probably sometime around 2018, 2019, within the ETF world, there was this sudden sort of surge in uh, diversity and inclusion funds. So not just gender specific, but diversity and inclusion specific. And I was like, yeah, you know, finally. And then what happened two years later or a couple of years later is a lot of them liquidated. Now, I think that's the challenge that let's call them themes or niche themes face, right? The more complex, the more expensive. Now, these diversity and inclusion funds were pretty expensive. They were higher than 60 basis points for an ETF, and that's, that, that's, quite, that's quite high. And what I think is, you know, you had this sudden supply, maybe an oversupply, high fields that just joined together to form liquidation risks, which is what happened. Now... The S, the S portion is, is small, you know, we've established that. I think the third and last thing I'll say about funds is the broad ESG fund space, right? That's, about, you know, ES plus G. That's about 
two trillion. Now you would hope that these consider social characteristics, but what's interesting is that we find very little evidence of this, right? If you if you look at companies most included in ESG funds versus those least included, social scores seem to make very little difference in you know what gets more included, while the E definitely does. So in other words, higher the E score, the more likely they end up being in ESG funds for a company, whereas social scores, there's very little difference. Companies that are highly included in ESG funds have almost the same social score as those that are less included in ESG funds. So that leads me to believe that the E is where it's at. People are ignoring <laughs> the S. So either of two things are happening. Either, you know, social scores don't matter or funds are integrating social factors in a way that's not captured by scores. I don't know what it is. I don't know what's better. But I think at the end of the day, it's it's not a big factor as for what we've seen. I don't know if that's surprising or disappointing. What type of feedback oh, have you gotten when you've you know, talked to investors about that? analysis. Yeah, so I think half the world is like, yeah, you know, that's as, that's as expected. And the E is, like I said, where it's at. <laughs> uh, the other half act surprised, like, oh my God. But then I, I have to remind myself that, you know, a lot of the conversations, I don't know about you, but a lot of conversations I have are about quantifying the E. So, I mean, at the end of the day, I don't think I'm surprised. Would I like to see improvement? Yes, for sure. I wonder what the barriers are. I wonder how much of it is that sometimes quantifying these social issues can be a bit of a challenge. And there still seems to be a fair bit of company reluctance, even when there are metrics to report in sharing that information. A while ago, I was doing a project on restaurants and in a reporting standard where a company was explicitly asked to report on employee turnover, clearly a relevant metric for an industry characterized by high turnover, instead of reporting on that, which is something I would tend to think management has to know and has to be tracking, mm -hmm. they put random diversity <laughs> metrics in there, which isn't to say that th there's no importance with that. But in this particular context, yes, not particularly bloopers. not particularly relevant. <laughs> Our next episode can be ESG data bloopers. <laughs> um, I mean, but no, I understand. So I think the sort of the Unability to quantify the S definitely has a role. I think diversity there is definitely one of the more quantifiable things. I mean, is that okay? I don't know, but yeah. I mean, I guess as long as we're talking about metrics, you did mention before that you have some favorite ones. I yes. mean, what, <laughs> what are they? Um, let me speak to diversity specifically. So people use, you know, the most common women on boards. I use it too because it's the most common. But when it comes to favorite metrics, I have three. Now, two of these metrics are what I consider sort of forward-looking metrics. You know, they tell you more about where a company is going to go rather than where it's been. So the first one is looking at company targets, you know, around diversity, sort of more forward-looking targets, not so much, you know, this is a female representation or whatever it's more sort of quantifiable and forward-looking the second is my favorite favorite metric take a guess <laughs> executive compensation executive yes compensation. <laughs> so it's does uh, executive compensation link to gender again you know again a forward-looking metric I mean if if my bonus depends on it I'm gonna do it kind of thing so 
that's the second. And then the third one is, I mean, this metric was part of the GEI, the Gender Equality Index that Bloomberg has. But it's the percentage of women in the top and bottom pay quartile. And I think that tells you a huge amount about the pipeline problem that we have today, which is that there are a lot of sort of women at the bottom of the organization and a far fewer number at the top. And in my mind, that leads to problems like the pay gap. Like, I don't know how much of the pay gap is, you know, unequal pay for equal work. I don't think that's it. I think a lot of it is this pipeline issue um, in the promotion cycle or, or however you want to put it. So those are my three favorite metrics and for gender. I guess going back to my comment that sometimes companies are reluctant to report, are those metrics commonly reported and are they used? Uh by me, yes. <laughs> By others, I, I don't know. I think the most common uh, metrics like, you know, women on board, female executives, and I, I, I do use these metrics as well, right, women on boards. But sometimes I, I wonder, you know, how much does that drive diversity specifically? And I have this interesting anecdote um, when it comes to women on boards. So <clears throat> you would hope that, you know, having more female leaders would sort of filter through the organization, right? But take the comparison of Europe and the US. So Europe has the highest percentage of women on boards, right? It's it's close to 40% as a median probably. And that's because a lot of countries in Europe have board quotas. In other words, you have to have a certain share of your board be women. Otherwise there are regulate, uh, regulatory penalties for some countries. So of course it leads and the U.S. is slightly behind because it doesn't have any board quotas. But if you look at female executives, that's where Europe is much less than the U.S., right? So you would hope that higher women on boards in Europe trickles down to levels within the organization. But it, I guess it hasn't done that. So either, you know, just like trickle down economics, this takes decades and decades and a long time and we still have to see it. Either that or it doesn't have an impact. I don't know which one it is. Yeah, that that is a challenge. I mean, I believe very passionately in ESG data and the importance of reporting on it. But I sometimes yeah. think the markets get so hung up on that that they forget that it's not about the reporting. It's really about being able to measure performance and yeah. and they the focus gets a bit lost. But, you know, I guess speaking of performance, mm-hmm. um, have you seen any evidence that performance on these metrics are translating into financial returns? So good question. And we did this study again, women on boards, because that's the most available data point. Uh, What we found is that when it comes to returns, different regions see different behavior, right? It's not like this one size fits all. So in the US, what we found is that screening out companies with the least women on boards had some kind of performance implication, did improve performance. So in other words, you know, the worst women on boards had the worst returns, but it wasn't linear. It wasn't like, you know, higher diversity equals higher returns. That was the U.S. In Europe, it was linear, you know, go figure. (laughs) But in Asia Pacific, there was there was almost no link. And that that kind of sucks because Asia Pacific is where it's needed. So that was returns for volatility. We found that, you know, across the board, there was a little more consistent relationship between women on boards and lower volatility and just more regions saw it. But then 
you know, if you ask me, is that due to gender or is it due to other things? I'm not sure. So take, for example, there's a size bias, right? Companies with more diverse boards tend to be larger and larger companies have lower volatility. So if you ask me, was that lower volatility because of gender, because of other things? I don't know. It could be either, you know, some some regions saw, you know, no size bias, but lower volatility. Some saw the opposite. So we don't know. Yeah, I think that challenge of causality versus correlation flows into a lot of the even broader, more academic research on on gender issues. And, you know, it, it is, as I said, kind of going back to what I said earlier about kind of this moral component, yeah. you know, these things are great to see. But if you're thinking about it from a management perspective, you know, quite honestly, I'm not sure every single industry yeah. You know, it may be the only right thing to do, but not necessarily that it's financially material. Yeah. Coming you know, back to materiality, right, where we started. In, yeah. in, in my mind, we've yeah. already admitted it, it is my passion. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, you know, that said, certainly from some industries, focusing on these issues and maybe broadening it out beyond gender, it really does matter a lot. I mean, if you have super high turnover, you're struggling to recruit, and women are only not even 10% of your workforce then you've basically shut yourself off to half mm. the population. And, you know, that is going to be an ongoing challenge. Yeah. And so finding ways to address that, you know, will put you at an advantage. And there are some examples of it. There's an Indian airline that realized that getting women pilots, if they made some accommodations, gave some more clarity on scheduling or had, um, you know, more opportunities, they were able to attract more women, which, gave them more flexibility. And similarly with trucking, with some companies making a concerted effort to address some of the safety challenges and, again, flexibility challenges, they they were able to attract more women than their peers, and it helped. You know, or, you know, a different example, if you're designing and maybe broadening the lens on desert, diversity beyond gender, if you're designing products for consumers and you have only a very non-diverse group of product designers, you yeah. might not create products that are applicable for a broader universe. I, I mean, it's yeah. it's things like, um, you know, makeup covering a broader ranges of skin tone or, you know, similar issue with some healthcare products. So, you know, I think in certain places, it really, really matters and would be management to focus, which isn't to say I'd want to discourage them from, you know, improving, you know, on a broader basis. But if you're trying to explain it to the financial markets for sure. Yeah, I have heard that, you know, the product aspect of gender, I, I mean, that's a little harder to quantify, like, from a holistic sort of universe perspective, but it is definitely something, uh, something that I've heard. And I just want to go back to one of the points. So, you know, I said that, you know, do metrics like women on board drive diversity? So I want to flip the lid and go back to my favorite metric gender linked to executive compensation and say, you know, there are some metrics that do drive performance. And I'm talking about diversity performance, not financial performance. And we did this analysis and found that for companies that do have exec compensations linked to diversity, they did see improvements in sort of financial, not financial, in the, sorry, cut. 
three, two, one. For companies that do have these gender links to executive compensation, they did see their share of female executives increase over the last three years, sort of much more than the benchmark. Um, benchmark was the Russell 1000 in this case. So, you know, I, I feel like there are some metrics that work. There are some metrics that, you know, we don't know yet. And there are some metrics that I'm, I'm just not sure about. Um, but I want to go back to sort of uh, the whole aspect of materiality, I guess. And I think what we've learned today, or at least what I've taken away, is that, you know, the S, the social aspect, it's it's really overlooked. You know, funds don't integrate it as much as the E, or at least to the level that we wanted to. So, so Gail, my question to you is, you know, how does one integrate this into investment decisions? Yeah, that's a loaded question. Yeah. Obviously, it's going to depend and and differ for each investor based on their goals and the ambitions. I mean, so let's just take a step back. Yeah. If you're running a gender fund or a social fund and you're very clear about what you're doing, setting a broad goal and ambition, particularly if you're trying to have impact, nothing wrong with that. Mm -hmm. But more fundamentally, if you are just doing fundamental analysis, should I be buying this stock? understanding you know which issues matter for that industry and that company because of course every business model is going to vary and, and exposures will vary and then try to understand you know basic analysis like what is the company doing about those issues and how does that performance compare to what their peers are doing um you know it, it's fundamental analysis i think it's really in some level putting a layer on what you're already looking at and doing. Now, that said, taking it at like a slightly higher level, you know, there's certainly opportunities for firms to establish policies, mm -hmm. you know, if you don't want to get embroiled or accept the risk of um, association with forced labor, you can certainly set a broad policy, you know, across your firm and just be, again, very transparent up front that you're doing it. And, you know, there's that long-term risk or tail risk of, you know, being associated with a company that, like, gets embroiled with an issue like that yeah i think i mean all in all it just sounds like esg is it's it's just more of a 360 degree view of a company right rather than just a financial view i mean if you ask a risk analyst do they want more information or less information i'm pretty sure they're gonna say more information <laughs> <laughs> it's like I, I don't know if, if one of if rob said this in one of our colleagues but it's like you know when you're choosing a husband do you want more information or less information same thing applies. Um, but Gail, you know, despite everything you're saying, you know, you're saying it's material, it should be you know, integrated into these strategies. I completely agree, but it's become so political, right? It's such a aspect of this political pushback. And people are saying it's, you know, not consistent with fiduciary duty and all that fantastic stuff. So what are your thoughts there? Uh, sounding like a broken record, it goes back to materiality. <laughs> I think if you're looking at the issues that are financially material for a company, it's hard to argue that they're not consistent with fiduciary duty. On the flip side, you know, it becomes a little bit harder to justify perhaps if you are looking at um, broader social impact without being able to tie it back into that. Um, but, you know, again, it is incredibly clear that some of these social issues can have tremendous consequences for the health of the company. 
Um, and you could argue flipping it around. It could actually be a lapse of fiduciary duty mm. not to consider them. Just a few examples. Uh, think of what happened to Boeing after the 737 MAX yeah. issues and the other safety issues that came up after that. Um, yeah, yeah, dam collapse and, you know, gosh, there was existential corporate yeah. risk yeah. after yeah. that. Yeah. Um, Meta, you know, just look at that. Uh, Threads has, and I, I haven't seen an update in the last few days, but over 100 million users. But my understanding is they haven't been able to launch it in Europe yet because they still have to mm -hmm. navigate the privacy concerns there. They were just assessed one of the highest, if not the highest, fines related to data and privacy yeah. issues. Okay. Um, and then a couple of years back when Google and Apple started to address the um, privacy issues within iOS and Android, that had, you know, a disruption for Meta's advertising business that, you know, had quantifiable, I saw one estimate of $10 billion. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, to say that these things aren't material would be wrong. And just another example um, I've done a lot of work on labor, and one, one thing we've seen as the labor markets have tightened is that these issues go just beyond money. Um, you know, we're still UPS is still negotiating, but one of the one of the issues that their workforce demanded was air conditioning and delivery vans because yeah. of you know we're seeing increasing heat. Um, you know, I mean, there's a news of a new strike or disruption. Obviously, we just had the um, actor strike announced. So, um, you know, these things do have really tangible impacts if yeah. you don't pay attention to it. But it's a matter of figuring out which issues those are for which company. And then I think it becomes incredibly hard to debate the validity of, you know, an investor considering this issue in their yeah. investment decision. I think that's, I mean, I think that's all fair and that's, that's absolutely correct. So I guess, you know, the last few thoughts I have is that, you know, I, I think we're all convinced that the S is material, you know, certain issues to certain industries. It's, it's all about identifying that. It's hard. I'm not going to lie. Um, and I think funds sort of, funds don't include it. That's what we see, or not to the extent that we want them to. You know, my hope is that maybe when we regroup on the S, <laughs> we'll see a change. So that's a that's a wrap up on the S within ESG, the social aspect. You can find a lot more data and analysis of social issues by going to BI ESG on the Bloomberg terminal. If you have an ESG quandary or a burning question, you would like to ask our BIESG experts, please send us an email at esgcurrents at bloomberg.net. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers? The Home Depot has an idea. Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to bring out the most in her patios, walkways, and gardens. Right now, get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants indoors and outside. Shop our wide selection online and pick up your order in-store and give mom the gift of a beautiful garden. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 at The Home Depot. How doers get more done. 
The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.